This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a hop shank. off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that. I would like to welcome author and elite performance coach, Dr. Larry Widman, to the Sub 70 podcast. Doc, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, we have this new book that is out. It's exciting stuff. Uh, Max Out Mindset, Proven Strategies that Prepare You and Your Team for Battle in Business, Sports, and Life. I think it sounds very applicable to you know a broad range of things. Um, how did the book come about, and, and what sort of are the, the lessons you know we should be taking away from the time and effort and everything you put into writing it? Well, yeah, I mean, it really wasn't all that planned, although I have had a lot of people ask me, you know, where are you ever going to write down what you do for teams and athletes, uh, since a lot of people don't have access to somebody like you. And I just realized that over the last 20 years, especially the last 10 years, I had just been blessed to be around so many great teams and coaches and athletes, leaders and businesses that I, I was like, ah, they have such great stories. I can, I can tell their stories. And if I just don't screw it up, maybe it'll be worth, uh, you know, helping somebody out anywhere in life. And so, um, you know, to me, Max Out Mindset is really about trying to have the best version of your mindset wherever that will take you. I always tell people they're not all Bill Gates, they're not all Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods, but you can definitely train your brain at whatever level you're at um, to be the best version of itself. And I always just tell people, if you want to be in, uh, uh, to max out your performance in any endeavor, best surgeon, best teacher, best businessman, you know, best athlete, then you need to work on all aspects of high performance. And I always talk to people about the high performance stool, meaning there's four legs and there's a physical leg and there's a technical leg and a tactical leg. And those are the legs that most people spend their energy on. And I've just introduced, you know, how do you incorporate the mental leg of performance so that that part's just what I call just as important to maxing out. And I just hope that I can offer a you know, a blueprint, so to speak, because I think it's easier for somebody to say, you know, I want to jump four inches higher and a strength coach might give you a prescription or let's suppose you want to improve your putting in golf. Well, you know, the golf coach will tell you, here are the different ingredients that we're going to work on to improve your golf game or your putting in particular. And, you know, there's an easy prescription that people can at least see. It may not be easy to do, but we know what we're going to do. And I think for the mental game, it's a lot more challenging for people to to try to understand, well, what does that mean? How do you train them to be more confident? Or can you really train someone to be more composed? Or you know, what does that mean to visualize? Like, how do you do these things? And so I always just try to tell people that anything I'm going to teach, you can train just like any other ingredient of performance. And so if I'm going to talk about confidence or composure or focus, then I should be able to tell people, how do you, how do you actually train these things in the mind so that you can then elevate your overall performance? And so Really, that's how I tried to organize the book into a section called Preparing for Battle, more about the philosophy of high performance and how you get there mentally and what are the other ingredients, and then max out your mind is the first section, and that's really all the ingredients that help you get there, the high performance mental skills, mindset, mindfulness, grit, those things to train your mind first. And then there's a section on maxing out your emotions, appreciation, gratitude, happiness, vulnerability. Those are really important topics for people that want to go deeper. And then if you're on a team, right, even if you just have two on your team, I call that, you know, Jack Riggins, my partner, will tell you that's a group or a team. And so my last section is really about how do you max out your team by looking at the, you know, what are the best coaches do? What are the best leaders do? What are the best teams do? And then some special sections in there on how you evolve and then ultimately getting to what we call the power of ultimate trust. And, you know, I hope I, you know, have an outline there that allows people, whether you're an individual or a team, to um, help you with a prescription to maxing out. Well, let's get into the golf side a little bit of it, since it is a golf podcast. And I, I was kind of thinking about this of so some questions that can kind of, you know, correlate back to the book that you wrote and what you do for a living. And the, the thing that I thought about with golf is, you know, golf is one of those things where, you have to have confidence to play well, and you need to be focused. 
but yet you need to be relaxed. So in a, that's kind of hard to do. And, in, in, you know, I can, you know, just using myself, I can find myself sometimes just sort of wandering, looking at the trees. And then sometimes I'm just like, you know, as a golfer, I'm sure everyone can kind of relate. You're like really into it, but there's no shutoff valve. And then I go to the PGA Tour and watch the guys, and I see they have an ability to sort of, for lack of a better word, shoot the shit with their caddy. And then all of a sudden, when it's their turn to go through their process and hit a ball, you can just see the switch turn on and they turn it off. So how, and that's just my assessment. You might probably, or I'm sure working with professional athletes, know more about it than I do. But how, how do we find that focus, intensity, but yet being relaxed at the same time so it doesn't get, you know, overly, what word am I trying to use, where you're just overly aware, overly hyper, overly jazzed up for the, the the event that day, but not letting your brain go sideways either. Is Do the pros kind of have it right when you watch those guys or how they do it? You're partly right there. I mean, how do you find this calm aggression so that you can still stay, you know, um, and do what you need to do when it matters? And so, you know, if you really, um, if you really narrow down what I do with athletes, including professionals, is to help them train, you know, especially if it's not a team, to train for what I call an elite mindset. And so what I say, there's building blocks for that. And there's things like really becoming a master goal setter, learning how to take control and master your self-talk, which is huge even at the highest level. You know, how do you manage what we call arousal control or your nervous system? And then, you know, the skill of visualization or imagery and what role that might play in an elite mindset. And then along with mindfulness strategies, you take those as the building blocks of an elite mindset. And ultimately all I'm trying to do with athletes or in this case, golfers, there's just four ingredients that set your mind to be elite and mindset, which is, and you mentioned three of them, confidence, focus, which I would call concentration, composure, and then there's one called commitment, which I talk about with being an all, you know, all in on all four legs of that performance tool. Are you committed? You know, are you going to live your best version? How committed are you to be in the best? And not everybody has time to do that. So, um, but then ultimately I try to use those building blocks so that you can be confident and you can train that and you can train for focus or concentration and you can train your body to be composed. And so, you know, if you take each one of those one at a time and you say, how do you, you know, why are those so important for a golfer? Because it's what you said, you know, there's a lot of downtime. And I think most people know that anytime there's a lot of downtime in a sport, even if it's a minute, you know, in a timeout or in golf or 90% of the time is walking and thinking, your mind can get in the way. So you have to have strategies that you build in for yourself that work for you. They may not work for somebody else. And that's that comes down to practicing and training the mindset skills, no different than you, you know, hitting a drive, you may have it, you may have something that works for you from a golf coach that doesn't work for another player based on your physicality and just the way you're wired. So um, ultimately, you've got to train those things. And the good news is you can. I always tell people what the best do better than the rest is be able to be in the present moment. You know, that's being right here, right now, so that if you're with your caddy and you're talking and you have five minutes, then you're not worrying about your shot maybe once you've done maybe your tactical discussions and you're just relaxed having a conversation you're present but now it's time to shoot now you've got to get your mind shifted back to the presence of what we're talking about which is your golf shot and we can train the art of focus but what's more important if you think about this not only in golf but life our brain is always getting distracted so we're focused on something and then our mind something gets in the way maybe we hit a bad golf shot you know maybe we get a really bad break you know and it, it, it took a bad bounce um, you know, or we got cut off in traffic and we're, you know, frustrated. Could be anything. Um, now we have to refocus. And that's what the best really do is they learn to focus, their brain gets distracted, and they refocus. And then the same thing, you know, when you talked about composure, that ability to know where, where your body needs to be so that you're not too nervous and too tight. So I, I always challenge the best athletes to come up with between one and ten where they function at their best. Maybe for some, like for me, I'm more like a 6 out of 10, just a little bit more than average. But if I get up to an 8 or 9 out of 10 where I'm really hyped up and I'm really keyed up and my adrenaline's going, that's not going to work for me. The problem is most people don't know how to bring it back down from a 9 to a 6 in big moments or under pressure. And if you can bring it back down to an 8 or a 7 with breathing techniques and mindfulness techniques and visualization and maybe some self-talk, now you have a chance to execute that tough putt on 18 or 
you know, whatever, you know, or that hundred yard shot you need to make to put it on the green because you've got to get up and down in two, you know? And so we can train that composure using very uh, specific breathing techniques, very specific mindfulness techniques. And uh, it's not rocket science. It just takes practice and a sort of a prescription on how to do it. Um, so, and then ultimately you can train confidence and I'm happy to go into more, a deeper dive on those things if you're interested, but those are where we try to get somebody is to be confident, composed and focused. Cause if you can do those three things, it's really hard not to max out. Yeah. And, and it all makes sense. Like I said, if you just, like I said, I'm always interested in watching the guys on tour and they seem to be doing all those four things you talked about in, in one golf hole of the way they carry <laughs> themselves, the way you can, like I said, I can watch that and just see the, maybe they're at level two or three, they're just in the round talking sports with their caddy. And then when it's their turn, it's like, you can almost just see them transform into the process and then boink, they're out of it back with the caddy. Okay. Look at the shit. It's just amazing to watch how, and that's probably why they're on the PGA Tour, right? I mean, exactly what they you're saying. They spend hundreds like, of hours. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, they're so good at it. It looks so natural. It looks like they don't even have to really think about it. Just this is what they do for their living, and this is how they, they know probably what they need to do to get the most out of their ability. It's very cool to watch if you actually just step back and just watch that process, just one whole of it. How do they, you know, and I always say this too, you can always tell them. If you didn't know one thing about golf, and you watched a pro-am group, and you, and you watched them walk down the fairway, you could tell who the pro is by the way they walk. Mm-hmm. It's crazy, yeah, it takes a right? a lot of like, practice. Yeah, they got this. There's a swagger, right? There's a confidence and a swagger just the way they move on the golf course, which I just find interesting as hell. Like, you can tell that guy's the pro. Or that, you know, if you go out to an LPGA event, that, that uh, you know, woman golfer is a pro. It's, it's, you can just see the way they carry themselves. It's very, very interesting from a psychological standpoint of they look like they own that fairway, for lack of a better word. Yeah, well, what's interesting is that, you know, the best athletes, they still struggle with all these things. If you talk to any of them, you know, because I talk to so many, they will tell you I struggle with my self-talk. I struggle with confidence. And so what I always try to let the you know, average golfers or the very good golfers know, or anybody who's just trying to be the best in their sport, which is what the best do is they have it. They can, they have this aware awareness when their self-talk starts to go negative and they have this awareness when their, their body, their muscles or their brain or their body gets tight or too hyped up. So they have this awareness. They're very good at noticing when it's out of kilter. And then what they, what's so important about it is they always have a strategy to do something about it. So they have a technique or a strategy for everything. My self-talk goes negative. Here's the two or three things I try to do to change my self-talk that works for me. Here's how I breathe. One of the really interesting things, and I don't know if you ever if you saw this, but last year, I think it was roughly a year ago, Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson played a, a match on mm-hmm. TV, a made-for-TV match. Yep. And if you go back and watch it, there were several holes where Phil Mickelson, you could visibly see him breathing, and not only that, he sometimes would take a second or a third breath, which you don't see too often with golfers. You'll see them take that one deep breath and then line up, maybe do their little waggle and hit their shot. But they're, most of them are really good at taking a deep belly breath, and there's science behind why that works. But I love watching Phil because I'm sure there was, there was a lot of money on the line, and there was a lot of nervousness in that match. But he really, really paid attention to his breathing. And there were times where he started to go, and he stopped and would take another very deep tactical breath, you know, which if you ask Jack Riggins again, I mean, the Navy SEALs, they practice that type of breathing, yeah. what we call four by four breathing in combat, because when the bullets are flying and they're, you know, hiding and waiting to attack and their heart is pounding and their muscles are tight and they have to execute a very detailed plan, they know how to tactically breathe. They know how to take advantage of the science of getting that diaphragm involved, that muscle that expands your lungs to actually trigger a nerve that goes back into your brain that calms you down. There's, there's real science behind why breathing calms your nervous system down. So again, what the Phil Mickelson's of the world do, and really a lot of the high school and college athletes that I work with all the time do, is they get really good at having awareness. And when their mind or body is starting to affect their performance, and then they have a strategy to do something about it, and that's it. And most people are blown away by the fact that the Phil Mickelson's and the Tigers and whoever else, out there struggle with some of these mental things as well. They think they have it all figured out, but they don't. They just have an awareness and a strategy to deal with it. 
I'm going to ask you this one too, which I think is interesting, especially from a golf standpoint. That golf, I don't know what your opinion is, but to me, golf caught on to the mental side of things for improved performance in the 70s, 80s, like Dr. Bob Rotella, those guys. And golf seemed to embrace it quicker than other sports, or at least it seems to me, versus maybe football or some of the other sports that you think of of a more physical standpoint, even though golf's a physical game. Why do you think golf, if that, if you agree with me, and if not, you know, love your opinion of other sports were ahead of that as well, but do you think, do you think golf grabbed onto it quickly? And then why do you think golfers in general grabbed onto that, these concepts so quickly versus maybe some other sports? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. I think one, you know, you mentioned Dr. Rotella, and he was particularly interested in golf. I mean, and so, a couple of things. One, one, I think he probably identified as well as a sports psychologist that which games are you going to struggle with the most mentally, if we're being honest. And that's kind of what I alluded to earlier. Anytime the vast majority of that sport is spent in the thinking mode, you know, relative to, I don't know, you know the answer better than I, but I hear it's something like for an entire round of golf, you're actually swinging for about six minutes or something. It may be yeah. more than that, but for three yep. or four hours, that means 95% of the time your mind can get in your way. And I think for that reason is probably the number one reason that, you know, um, it's attracted people in golf more than ever today. But let's face it, if Dr. Rotella started helping a few people and they got an edge on the mental game, that spreads pretty quickly because everybody at that level is looking for an edge. Even in the 70s, they were looking for an edge. Maybe it wasn't as detailed today with them having some of them having you know, you hear about Russell William, Wilson in football spending a million dollars a year on his body, you know, between masseuses and cooks and just on performance every year just to keep his mind and body right. But they were looking for an edge back then. And if, that, if, if Rotella offered them an edge and it starts to spread, you start to say, what is different about that person? Then you find out Rotella's working with them. And you're like, what? What do you mean? What's he do for them? You know, and it kind of. So I think they embraced it, and I think there's just more mental stress in golf than there are a lot of other sports because a couple of reasons. One, we talked about 95% of the time you have time to think, which means your mind can get in the way. And two, let's be honest, you're out there by yourself. You can't point to another person and say they blew coverage, or if you make a mistake, maybe maybe that linebacker or that other point, you know, the other guard on your team in basketball covered up for your mistake. You know, you got turned around, but somebody made the play for you. You're out there alone, like wrestlers are out there alone and a few other sports, but you're it. And something, obviously, at the pro level, you have a caddy. At many other levels, it's just you, and that gives you a lot of time to think, and you better have some strategies to get your mind right, or it's going to be, especially under stress, like if we're being honest, right? I mean, if, if everything's going your way at whatever level you're playing at, if you're playing kind of in flow and playing a good match and, you know, you're probably not overthinking at times, but you know, you get one bad shot, you shank a ball, um, you know, you're in a tournament and you know, all of a sudden it starts to get, it matters. It's getting to the last couple holes or you have to win this next hole to continue on the match. I mean, when that starts to happen, your mind and body start to get in the way and you better have strategies when you get under pressure, or under stress. And otherwise we're just going to fall short. We'll tend to underperform and choke and, you know, golf figured it out much earlier. And now, you know, most of the high-level sports will um, um, have somebody involved in the sports psych world. And even the real macho sports, you know, or whatever you want to call it, like football and wrestling, they've really incorporated the mental approach in a significant way. What, what do you think are the elements – well, before I get to the next question, I agree with you. You play, I play my best golf when you just simply see the golf shot and hit the golf shot, and that's – that's rare air to get into when golf becomes easy, if you can just execute it. I agree with you. The tough part is it may not have your best stuff. It's coming down to the last two holes, and that's when I think that mental stuff gets in your head of, you know, I'm not playing my best. My confidence isn't there. How do I get this thing in the hole? Do you start seeing trouble versus seeing positive outcomes, right? And I, I think that's so interesting what you're saying that, you know, at times golf can be easy if in, in at whatever level you're at, and it seems like nothing can get in the way and it just happens. The trick is when you don't have your best stuff, how do you make that pars on the last two holes when you know you're not operating at 100%? And that's where I think that stuff is so valuable to sort of right, calm yourself down, stay in the moment, 
work on what you know you can do and and execute the golf shot even though you're not at your very best i think that's where i think golf can like for myself can be easy when you're playing the very best but that's rare right most of the time golf's a bit of a struggle and i think that's where having that element of knowledge can really really help when you need it when you like you said sometimes you just need to make three parts in a row to win a match out and it can just be like your own home match but in our own little world that's a big match for us and i think that's where that stuff is so valuable um you know of having those tools in the toolbox yeah especially if you know i mean again um, especially if you hit a really bad shot you're playing fine and now you just hit a disaster shot can you bounce back into the next moment you know or do you let the next hole you know, suppose you get a triple bogey, right? And it just came out of the blue. Everything's been going well. Is that, do you let that affect the very next moment? You know, for some people, they'll turn one bad hole into two or three holes, even at the highest level, you know, or maybe they really did not perform well on that hole the day before. It's a two, three, four-day tournament. And does that get mental? Do you start picturing the ball, you know, maybe you hit it way wide, right into trouble last last round. Do you overcompensate? Do you start thinking, oh, my gosh, I don't want to hit it right, rather than focusing on your processes of what to do to execute. Mm-hmm. Your brain starts to think about what it shouldn't do, or, oh, my gosh, I hope I don't hit it there again. Won't that be a disaster? Especially exactly. if sometimes you're playing with a team, you know, in golf, too, and am I going to let my teammates down or my teammates down? And so it can get very mental very quickly, even when you're playing well, let alone you know, end game situations that we were talking about. So I always encourage people to have mental strategies that they put into place so they, that becomes part of the routine so that they don't try to apply it when, when things are falling apart. It's very hard to apply a strategy when you don't practice it every day. So I think that's why you see the best golfers too. They have a routine about them. If you, you know, I mean, when I went to watch the senior PGA tournament or I don't remember which one now. Jack will kill me, but in Omaha, it was it was either that or the senior U.S. Open. Just watching those guys and the routines that they had, everything was the same on every single shot. I mean, the amount of times they kind of warmed up their, you know, their swing and the way they had their waggle and the way they breathe and everything they did was the same. And I think they do it on purpose. It's why you'll see free throw shooters and you know mm-hmm. people serving a volleyball. They have what we call a pre-performance routine and. It's so important to have that in golf because it's at times it's the only thing you can control because you have this built-in routine that gives you confidence and feelings of control. Like I know this is something I do every time. I that's all I have to do is go up and do this and then execute. And you know under stress that can be very powerful. But but again that's built in, so you can't just all of a sudden decide I want to. Oh yeah. Doc told us how to tactically breathe by breathing in deep through your nose for four and out through a count of your out through your mouth for a count of six. And you got to engage your diaphragm. You can't just do that on hole 17 or 18 when you never practice or you don't do it any other time. It just won't work right for you. And so I just encourage people to build it in whether you need it or not, because it just becomes part of your routine to help you stay calm and confident. And then you add in extra pieces when you need it. I think we're all fascinated um, you know, who grew up playing sports and still play sports and whatever it is about someone being elite and, and really great at whatever they choose to be great in and reaching that top of that performance. And, and you've worked it, you know, with people in sport and the business world and, and everything in between. Is there a commonality or ingredients that you have seen that, that makes that person elite or great at what they do and it, it and it doesn't matter if it's sport or if it's business or whatever it might be you see that these building blocks are there for that person to achieve that level of success is there some sort of two or three things that's just boy that those people have x you know i kind of look to the grit world when when you when i think of that question meaning you know grit has been defined as passion and perseverance for very long-term goals, all right? So that is, in in the grit world, Dr. Duckworth, and that's one definition. So when you think about what the best do over time, I mean, and I think you know this from the business world, um, it takes a long time to be good at something. And 1,000 hours over 10 years on average to become a master at something, whatever the number of hours it is, whether it's 6,000 or 14,000, you know, in order to become really good at something, business, sport, whatever, you have to spend a long time doing it, which means there's going to be lots of ups and downs. 
So you've got to you've got to have a passion for what you're doing. I mean, if you're doing it, if you're why I call it your why, meaning why are you doing this? Are you doing it for you? Or are you doing it for somebody else? You're doing it because it looks good. Like if you don't have a big enough why, it gets very hard to sustain um, what you need to do every single day to become great. Because we talk about the term deliberate practice. I don't know if you've heard that term, but that is a much different form of practice. Uh, the best way I could tell you would be like me going up and hitting some balls for 30 minutes on the driving range and just getting out some clubs and banging them and, you know, watching them go straight or not. And versus, um, you know, a professional who will go up there for an hour or two and every single shot has a purpose. So, it, you, know, you know, there's characteristics of that. I mean, it, you know, failure rate is high on the things you're trying to do. You know, you often get immediate feedback from your coach about what you didn't do well. It's very physically and mentally taxing to do a deliberate type of practice in sport but if you, and, and, or work. But if you want to be great, you've got to get really good at what we call, call about the, what I call the psychological assets of grit. So the first one is interest. Right? Like you have to have an interest in what you're doing, but you have to have this curiosity to continue to explore until you find what you're great at. And a lot of people get panicky because they think they have to find what they're going to be good at or what they like right away. And we know in the grit world, usually takes about six or seven different things that a person does before they say, that's something I'm really interested in. Like I, I could be good at that and I want to really put my effort into it. And, you know, golf is a solitary sport. It requires, you know, hundreds of hours of practice every day. I mean, the best go right back to the range and then they play all week and they go right back to the range. And so, and then you have to have this capacity to practice for long periods of time. You know, again, you want to become a master, you're talking 10,000 hours over 10 years. That's a lot of hours, 1,000 hours a year. You're talking 10 to 20 to 30 hours a week of practice to be great at the top level. You know, and then you have to develop this passion, and that's where that interest comes in. But passion means it's turned into a calling instead of just a job. So if you want to be great at something and you have a business, like if you can develop into a calling, like this is something you're supposed to be doing to help others, right? And then that last Asset is called hope. And it's really interesting that people that are great, that sustain and deal with the ups and downs and the adversities of very tough things, they f always feel like the next moment or the tomorrow is going to be a better day. And they train their brains for optimism. Optimism is what I call competitive advantage. And so when you can train your brain to be optimistic and learn to talk positively in the right way to yourself and to others, and you have hope and really this belief that tomorrow could be a better day even though today wasn't, it's much easier to get on when, you know, I mean, one day you shoot a 68 and another 67 the next day. Now you shoot an 81 on day three and you went from being in the lead to four down. Can you get on to the next day and feel like, you know, you can be great again or does that defeat you? And that's true in the business world and the ups and downs of business. It's true in the sport world. It's true in the medical world that I live in is can you stay confident and composed even though, over long periods of time when there's adversity and setbacks and the goals that you set for yourself are really difficult. And so that's really what the best do different than the rest. They just develop this grit about them and they use the mental skills and mindset skills that I was telling you about earlier to help them, you know, have that type of mindset that helps them stay to do the best, be the best version of themselves. When people want to make these changes and they want to improve, is, is there sort of a, a commonality of, what usually drives people to go and make those changes? Because it's hard. Like making changes is, it's a commitment. It's hard. Rewarding when you can accomplish it, in, in, in my opinion. But it takes real, real work. In your all the years you've been doing this, do you kind of see what, you know, someone might come to you and be ready to make those changes or try to get to that next level? Do you see a, a is there usually, yeah, these are the things that, that make people want to get to that next level and improve? Yeah, it's, two, it's one of two things. One, a person has this curiosity, and, this, and they've learned or heard about that training your mind is maybe the next frontier, like I'm doing everything else right now. Um, maybe they, are, they have a, a curiosity about the mind, or they've read about it, or they've dabbled in it a little bit, and, or they've heard from somebody else that, you know, hey, I've been working with Doc so-and-so, and and it's really made a difference for me. I've never been so calm. I've never been able to focus better, right? And they're like, hmm, I've been str I struggle with focus sometimes. So sometimes it's a, they have to be, they either have a self-awareness or a coach or somebody else has to make them aware that, hey, your mental game is holding you back. 
and they're like, okay, you know, and that's a tough thing to hear. But if you're committed to being the best, you know, and you have trust with your coach or maybe a, you know, another, you know, another golf friend of yours and they're saying, hey, I can kind of see how you lose your composure and you're calm and you're cool and collectiveness kind of falls apart so quickly out there. What's going on with you? And they're like, yeah, I don't know, but I don't know how to fix it. Somebody might say to them, hey, I know somebody who can help you with this. So that's one way. It's just curiosity on your own or somebody else helping you. And the second one, which is the more common one I'll see, is you have to be uncomfortable or being or having some amount of pain (laughs) to make you want to change. And so it could be that as a coach, your team isn't performing as well as it used to, and you feel like your job is on the line or you're not reaching your kids. I mean, in, so I work with two high-level volleyball coaches, and they both had pain in their own way before they reached out. So Coach Kirsten Bernthal Booth at Creighton, one of the best coaches I've ever been around, and took a team from 3-23 and 23 her first year before she came there to, you know, the Elite Eight a couple of years ago in volleyball in college. It's unheard of. She felt like she had lost her team one year, several years ago. Like she looked in their eyes and felt like they didn't trust her. And that she said it was devastating to her because every year her team had improved for seven or eight years and now it took a big step back. So for her, it was this awareness. I've lost my team. What is going on here? Like, you know, should I even be coaching anymore? So a lot of pain was involved with Coach Cook at Nebraska in volleyball, you know, one of the top coaches in history. His teams were making the final four and wishing, winning national championships every year. And for a few years in a row, they were only making the Elite Eight or the Sweet 16, and he knew there was a deterioration in performance, and it was very painful for him to have a couple teams like Penn State and Texas where he couldn't beat them anymore. So for him, I think it was enough being uncomfortable and knowing that something was wrong, but he didn't know what it was, but he felt like there was something going on with the mindset of himself, of his teams, that were making them fall short. And so I see that in the business world, too, where – You know, somebody feels like they're just not connecting with their sales managers as much anymore or their senior managers or maybe the business is just going backwards or staying neutral for a while. And for a while, you make excuses. Oh, this year was due to COVID. This year, you know, a competitor took some of our business. And after a while, you finally get to a point where you're like, you know what, every year I have an excuse for why we're not uh, performing the way I used to have a team perform or I'm not connecting with my team like I used to. And that is very painful for a person at the highest level because they're usually perfectionists and, you know, that they start to beat themselves up. And that's where I see a real capacity to want to change when somebody is suffering emotional pain or being extremely uncomfortable with the results that have been happening as of late. That, that's so true. I'll speak for myself that I remember, you know, it's, it, to me it's a, it's usually sort of like a, from a golf standpoint, like a rock bottom moment of mental you know, where it's just like, mm-hmm. you should be enjoying this. <laughs> You're just hating mm-hmm. yourself for playing bad. You made people in your group, you know, you think about it later and you're like, oh my God, I acted like a jerk. And it's like, I can't do this anymore. Right? Like, this mm-hmm. is crazy. And it's so interesting that sometimes it takes that kind of a a moment or a, almost like, a, okay, that's enough. I either, you know, I it, I'm ready to change. And you're sort of like just open for... It's interesting that you say that that's the most common uh, thing that people kind of want to make the change for it. I can speak from personal, you know, I'm, I, I still struggle with trying, having a perfectionist personality, but trying to improve and be mm-hmm. more fun with it. But it's interesting that you say that it sort of takes, for lack of a better word, like an oh my God moment, right? Where it's just like, mm-hmm. I, this is this is nuts. Why am I doing it this way? There's got to be a better solution out there. And you go to try to find that solution. It's so interesting that that's a commonality. Um, and I guess yeah, it makes I mean, sense, I just right? Think, yeah. Yeah, I just think that humans are pretty good at rationalizing things in the short term. So it has to be a really big aha moment or it has to be kind of sustained over just kind of getting punched over and over. Like, you know, you're just in a slump, you know, in golf for week after week now. Or you find you maybe have a good week and you're back into a slump. So there has to be a, a collective amount of pain developed or a real aha moment to where you, you know, where you're really disappointed and how you handle the situation, and you know that it's been building and it finally blew, that, you know, you know that that wasn't a fluke, that was probably going to happen at some point based on what you were thinking inside your brain, even though maybe you never actually did it or said it, that you finally had this crash, so to speak, of things that had built up over weeks for you. So either one of those, I think, is a real trigger and can be a trigger for positive change if somebody's, you know, not too arrogant or egotistical to – 
take a look at themselves. And that's yeah, not always right. easy. Yeah, and you got to say like, you know, this this we can't keep doing this if we want to get the best out of ourselves, right? Like in in, you know, hey, there's other people in this group besides you and yeah, it's mm-hmm. so interesting that that's what you say cuz like I said I've been working on it and I'm sure a lot of golfers understand exactly where I'm coming from cuz it's you know, it's uh golf can be very cruel tough games at time or a game at time and especially on the mental side, you know, when you're not at your best and you want to be at your best, it's uh it's so interesting that sometimes it takes almost like that sort of a moment and then you build up from there. And, and like in my case, I've actually played better under pressure working at it and trying and putting these things in, right? It's actually really improved and I enjoy it more. So it's, I'm almost looking back now for, you know, myself and I, and I would encourage other golfers that, you know, if they ever put the work in, I'm almost glad that bad moment happened. Because it's more enjoyable at this point, and I've worked at it, and it's better. And there's there's a positive outcome to it. You know, you still got to work at it, but it's I'm almost glad that happened at some level. It's so interesting that you say that that's a very common cause of why people want to change. It's, I find that fascinating. So. Yeah, I think it's true in all aspects of life. But remember, we've been talking also about a lot of golfers who spend all day long working on it. And obviously, there's a large number of golfers who are still great at the game and love the game who also – you know, have, uh, you know, they have a full-time job or a full-time business and they've got family issues to worry about, maybe parents and kids and, you know, but they still want to be really good at it. So they may not have as much time as a professional to work on it, but I try to remind people that it only takes five or 10 minutes a day to work on your mental game, you know, and then a lot of it you work on while you're practicing, you know, I mean, so a lot of it's built right in, like you build things right into your practice routine. So it doesn't have to be overwhelming, but it does take a, you know, identification of what you need to work on. And then, Oh, okay. What are, what are some of the strategies to, you know, how do I change my self-talk or how do I learn to relax more? How do I learn to focus more? Like which, which, which strategies do I use for that? So once you figure those out, it doesn't take a lot of time to build in a five or 10 minute a day mindfulness strategy and, a couple of minutes of deep breathing and, you know, things like that to say, all right, this is not hard to do. How do I set my intention or my goal for the day and what I want to get better at? It's not, it's not a long process, but it does take some time. And, um, but you know, for a lot of people, they got four or five other things going on in their life, even though they also want to be a great golfer. Yeah. Or play up to their level, right? Whatever their level Mm -hmm. of satisfaction is. Yeah. That's the great thing about golf is it, you know, it could be playing scratch golf or it could be, you know, shooting around 80 and you're happy with that because that's kind of where your level is that's what makes the game so great it's 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 all these different levels can still max themselves out of where you know based on their ability where they're happy with a good score that's that's the fascination of the game i think it's just never ending i'm trying to improve a little bit and you can still always have a very good round based on what your sort of ability is right it's there's no defined score of what's a good score essentially and in players yeah it starts yeah, over I mean, the next day, and you know I had a friend who was struggling to break seventy for I mean always would come close and he would and he finally broke it here last year, but it, you know he told me he was finally due to his mental approach that you know but for him, he was chasing that one i mean score that wasn't what he needed to have every day, but there were times where you were in that position if you're uh you know normally shoot seventy two to seventy six or whatever seventy eight and but and every once in a while you're in this position to break seventy, which is you know. In bowling, there's a score you occasionally want to break, or in golf, and then you realize you fall short because your body lets you down and your mind lets you down. And it wasn't any, it wasn't because you couldn't have done it. It was because you didn't handle the pressure of the situation when you started to get your mind ahead of the game. And now you're already thinking, oh my gosh, if I par those next three holes, I'm going to shoot a 69. Now we're no longer present. We're already worried about the future. And like, yep. so what can you do when your mind starts to drift to the future or to the worries of the past? Oh, I have a strategy to do something to lock my mind back in. doesn't mean he was going to break 70. I always tell people, I wish sport and life were fair. And if you just worked on all these things, you'd have always have the result you wanted. But I think it's great when you can then execute and go, you know, these are the things that held me back from breaking that score on occasion when I was in position. And I took charge of that, and I finally did break that score. That's, you know, I mean, obviously doesn't make or break your life, but, you know, people like to chase things, and they like to chase goals, and they like to break personal bests. And, you know, that's fun. And you can do that in golf, whether you're breaking 100 for the first time, like you said, or have five rounds in a row under 80 for the first time, or whatever you're – doing to say, you know what, I see signs of progress. I see signs of, um, you know, I'm getting better. 
And, um, and oh, by the way, you know, I've been working on this with my swing coach and I've been working on my mind to stay more focused and calm when I need to. And I can see that it's paying off and that means I'm having more fun, which is, for me, that's what it's all about. Even at the professional level, I still believe you can train fun into it. And I think the golfers who start to get so serious out there and they're constantly kind of banging their clubs and they just look at agony, they tend to underperform, you know, I mean, and even versus the golfers who sort of can kind of get on to the next shot, even though, you know, they just had a disaster hole. I mean, even Tiger had like an eight or nine not that long ago in a hole. And he thinks then birdie four of the five of the next yeah. holes. I mean, He's can you move on, yeah. right? Can you he move on? And yet I always say about Tiger, and this is maybe a good lesson for your, your, your audience too, which is I'm a big believer that if you want to max out your mindset, you've got to take care of your mental health. And, and, nobody's immune to mental health struggles in this world, right? I mean, it's just a fact. It doesn't mean everyone's going to struggle with their mental health, but it could be depression. It could be anxiety. It could be post-traumatic stress. If you were in the military, it could be all kinds of things. It could just be marital stress or things that are caused, causing you to feel temporary stress, but it's really hard to play at your best if you're struggling with your mind or your true mental health stuff and you're not dealing with it. So I always encourage people say, take a look at how you're doing mentally. There's no, there should be no shame uh, or embarrassment in getting help, either even if it's with clergy or, you know, I say sometimes an academic counselor or a teacher or a mentor of yours. Obviously, if it's bad enough, probably need to see someone professionally. But a lot of times, just being open and acknowledging, because I, I always said that the minute uh, Tiger had that problem with his wife and it became a big deal. I mean, in his personal life, it was more than just that. But I said, he's going to struggle with his game for many, many years. And I bet one of the ex-head coaches at Nebraska that he wouldn't win a major for at least another five years. And, I, and of course, I won that bet because it took about two. He's like, oh, no. I'm like, no. I said, this. I said, without his mental health being right, this is really going to crack his confidence. He's, he's been a master controlling his mind, and this thing has blown him open. Now, once he worked on those things, it took him a long time. I mean, how rewarding was that to see him win the Masters a year ago? You know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> and he did it in a little different way than he did before. He he enjoyed that process. He had fun with the process. He was enjoying the audience, you know, the gallery pre-COVID. I mean, you know, where he used to be so serious and locked in. He still was when he needed to be. But I'm telling you, he enjoyed that whole process of day by day, hole by hole, way more than he did in the old days. And I think it helped him get back and compete at a level that he, maybe he even thought he wasn't going to get back to after eight or nine years. Well, don't you think part of that when you go through some of what he, what he went through, and we'll never know all of it, but that mm -hmm. Superman bravado, I know I'm better than you, everybody else knows I'm going to win this thing, and it, it kind of looked like it went through his entire life from the moment he woke up to the moment he went to bed that he was Tiger Blankenwoods. Yep. Boy, that's got to be hard to, to when you when you really fall like that, and your family, you know, you lose your wife and it's a divorce and the embarrassment and all the stories come out. Mm -hmm. you, that's just that's got to be impossible to then show up to the first tee and feel like that same guy you did three years earlier, right? When you could kind of control yeah. everything. And, right, I mean, I can't imagine – I don't think he could have ever been the same guy and come back after that and win in the same way, right? There's that famous story where his wife wanted to throw a celebration for him after he won a tournament, and he told her – I think I have the story right. No, we don't do that. I'm expected to win, right? There's nothing mm -hmm. to celebrate here. This I'm supposed to do this. I think there was another player in their neighborhood who – I think it was like mm -hmm. Jesper Parnovic had a party because he's won like four times on tour. When he won, it was a huge deal. And his mindset was, well, I'm not celebrating anything. This is what right. I do. This is what I'm supposed to do. Boy, I think he celebrated that Masters win. I don't think that same guy could have came back, could he? It's it's that. No. It's, it's you're a what's, different what's interesting, father yeah, and what's better. Interesting. Yeah. For some people out there to be thankful, they're not somebody like him. Because somebody's like, "Oh, I wish I could be like Tiger." But if you look at the common themes, like there's a there's a benefit to being um, somebody like him. <laughs> a person who says, "I'm expected," I won't even celebrate, and then there's a cost. And what I mean by that, some people in your audience will be familiar with Urban Meyer, head football coach. He's retired now. Is at Florida, at Ohio State. He's won everywhere he's been at. But in 2009, it's been about 10 years, you know, he won the national championship in 2008. Think about how this compares to Tiger's story. He wins the national title in 2008. 
That night, they're having a huge celebration at his house, and he has locked himself in a room alone on the phone, and he is calling recruits. And his best friend comes into the room and said, what is wrong with you, Urban? Like, why aren't you mm-hmm. out here celebrating with us? And he said something very similar. He's like, you know, I've got to, I've got to take advantage of this right now. I've got to be calling recruits. I mean, if we don't go 13-0 and 0 next year, you know, what are people going to think? And so as that next year evolved, he had 21 of his 22 starters come back, and the year didn't go well. He lost 40 pounds during the season. And when they lost in the SEC championship game and eliminated their national title around that year, that night, his wife called 911 because she thought he was having a heart attack. He had taken Ambien and was unresponsive. He was on the floor saying he was having chest pain. And, you know, that notion of being, if I don't win at all or I'm expected to win at all and anything else is going to be a considered a failure, like to everybody and to me, you can see how the Tiger Woods and the Urbans um, fall apart. I mean, they both fell apart in different ways. The Urban, you know, had to retire and had a mental breakdown, so to say physical breakdown and you know tiger did too i mean he created an alter world for him right with whatever that involved with women and different things and you know when you have that much pressure and expectations on yourself and if you don't continue to win at that pace you're a failure it's unsustainable mentally and physically and the best in the world oftentimes crack um if they don't have a better awareness and so I love the fact that he worked on his mind, his mental health, and was able to come back out and win it a different way um, and celebrate in a different way. And, um, you know, he may not win as much. Part of it, he's older and he's got more physical problems, but he's got to be much more balanced and healthy physically and mentally compared to where he was. I mean, that was unsustainable. I mean, you already know. I mean, he had a complete breakdown in his life. And, um, when he, when people thought he was on top of the world, and so did Urban Meyer, and I have many other cases like that. But that's, I think, when you were talking about Urban, it really made me, or Tiger made me think, wow, Urban Meyer, Tiger Woods. I mean, think of the commonalities. And it's crazy what happens to people, especially men, if they don't take care of their mental health and stay balanced. They they will fall apart even when it appears that they're on absolute top of the world. And I think you probably just read about that guy who was head of Zappos who just yeah. died in a fire. I mean, he was, same thing, you read his backstory now, 46-year-old guy who's worth hundreds of millions, and it just didn't work, you know? I mean, he turned in into to turn to drugs and other things, and, you know, it had a tragic ending, but it happens all the time if you don't find that healthy balance. Yeah, and I think a lot of it's fear, fear of failure. Right too. You just it's it's a driving factor, right? Like it's just the fear of failure can can. I imagine Tiger had a lot of that too. Once those expectations and the greatness started, you know, how do you get off this train, right? Yeah, I mean, how do you stop? Because uh, the expectations are there. It's he dealt with it for a long time with a lot of pressure and was famous at a young age. You know, basically at fifteen, everybody knew in the golf world that's Tiger Woods. You know, he was. Mm-hmm. It would be a. I think it'd be a a very I mean, total greatness he had, but I also think it would be a very difficult life. It would be hard to trust people. It would have been hard to have who's your real friends. I I could see where it would just build up, build up, build up, and eventually it blows, you know. And he seems – you know what I like watching Tiger now? It never would have happened in his prime. I don't know if you see this as well, Doc, of his caring towards the younger pros and the mentoring. You know, in his yeah, heyday, he wouldn't have given anybody the time of day, you know. You figure it out. I'm not going to give you an advantage to beat me. And now it looks like he relishes helping those guys with the Ryder Cup or when he was the captain of the uh, President's Cup team. You know, those huge hugs to his guys when they won. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, he would have gave two shits about those other people in 2006. (laughs) And now you can just see the It's not a healthy way to live. Yeah. Don't you love watching that joy from him? Yeah. Yeah. I love seeing those moments, right? Because it never would have happened before. He just looks so happy. And, I, you know, how cool would it be for those players to play for Tiger Woods, right? And to get that mm-hmm. back, that feedback loop. So he, he looks – I love watching him play now. I used to kind of like – of course, I would root for him. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I loved, you know, not that far off in age. I saw he came up. But I actually like the new Tiger more, the balanced Tiger, mm-hmm. the good dad, the the joy of what he's doing. I think it's fun to watch. But yeah, you can kind of—he's not the same guy. He's not the same to me, at least. I don't know him at all. But from the outside, I should say, he does not look like the same exact killer he used to be. Yeah, human beings aren't designed to be that way. 
you know, Jack will tell you the same thing. I mean, what they train Navy SEALs to do isn't normal, right? And it's part of the reason a lot of Navy SEALs and, you know, people that are really high up in special ops, they have a lot of issues when they come back to society. What they see and what they do and how they have to do it at such a high level and the things that they have to witness and do in that level um, is it's not it's not healthy for the human mind and body. And that's true for I mean, think about all the child prodigies out there. I mean, there's hundreds of them, but the Justin Bieber's of the world, you know, I mean, the kids that were famous child stars and you look and say, wow, all they've done is struggle as an adult. I mean, it's so hard to be put in a position of fame that early and, and figure out how to grow up with any semblance of being healthy. And, you know, I feel bad for a lot of them because so many of us say, well, I wish I could be like him or I wish I could have been one of the Brady Bunch or the Partridge family. This is dating myself a little bit, but, you know, but and the Jackson 5, you know, I mean, you look at the Michael Jacksons of the world and the Whitney Houstons, all the people, I always say, look at the people who were considered maybe the best at what they did ever. Like Michael Jackson was arguably the best in rock, you know, in the 80s and the maybe the best artist in history, some people said. Whitney Houston had the best female voice in history, some people said. And then you look at their outcomes, and it's just tragic, and it happens over and over. So be careful for what you wish for. But a lot of people do navigate that because they do spend enough time finding that balance and working on their mental and mindset um, things so that they don't fall apart and they find the right healthy balance in life, even if you do have pain. Yeah, I give our friend uh, Commander Jack Riggins, uh, you know, former Navy SEAL, people listen to the podcast, he's been on, of his openness and talking about, even as a podcast, called The Dark Side of Elite. You know, Jack's mm-hmm. been very open with those struggles of, uh, you know, if you push it too hard and it is there is a downside to it. Um, I know he's in such a good spot now. He's got a great family, and he's he's grinded through mm-hmm. it. But it's very um, there's life lessons to be learned from Commander Riggins, in my my view, right? I think it's it's uh, mm-hmm. uh, he does a lot for people of of being as open as he is, and I mean that's why I'm comfortable talking about it on this because he's open about it. Mm-hmm. And sure. um, yeah, it's it's you know you don't you would just think of him as like the the toughest guy you've ever met, right? He's a Navy SEAL. It's greatness. It's He's achieved it all. Like he has nothing to prove to anyone. He he accomplished something that the tiniest percentage of people could deal with and get through and be at the top of his game. And yet there was still a downside to that. And um, like I said, thank goodness he's come out the other end of it. But it 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 takes a toll, you know. And you can see how Tiger got to where it is. And you know, we we're going. I was going to bring this up as well. I mean, does Bryson DeChambeau have to be careful here a little bit, right? I mean, it looks like talk about all in. I mean. He's all in on that mindset, but boy, it looks like, you know, maybe it's not going to be sustainable for 20 years, right? Maybe Bryson does it for 10 years and mm-hmm. gets his level of greatness. Cause I don't know if you could do what he's trying to do for 20 years straight of that kind of pressure and all the training and all the stuff he's putting his body through. And I'm sure he has, you know, the best mental coaches he can get as well, but he's all in on golf. I'm going to try to be the greatest player I, I can. What's your sort of view when somebody is, you know, that deep into it, putting the 50 pounds on, doing just moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed, golf, 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 golf. I'm, I'm trying to be as great as I can for the history books. And it's, but it's working for him. Like he won a major this year, so he can't argue right. the results. But <clears throat> is no. there a, is there a limited time where that's going to be sort of fruitful, for lack of a better word? Yeah. I mean, it, some of it depends on his overall wiring and how long this is sustained. I mean, you can't argue with somebody and say, Hey, they're fully committed and all in and say, you shouldn't do that. Like if he's chasing this dream for himself, like how do you argue with it? You just, what you hope you can do is that they can take lessons from other people, whether it's a Jack we just talked about or a tiger to say, you know, you can still be great, but how do you celebrate joy? How do you bring, you know, connect with other people still? Because when you start to eliminate, you know, your peers and you start to eliminate joy and, um, you know, then there starts to become a bigger and bigger cost, you know, that dark side of the lead. There is a dark side or a cost. And some people have to figure out, you know, how much is that cost worth it to pursue greatness? And so I don't argue with people that, challenge, you know, want to be all in to, you know, to be the best they can be. I just hope they can learn some lessons from other people they can relate to, you know, or other people they've learned about to say, all right, this is how I could get in real trouble with this. 
And, you know, some of that depends on do you have life, do you have kids, you know, do you have a good social support network in your life? Do you have what I call, we, Jack and I call a team within a team, you know, a, a few people in your life from different backgrounds who aren't yes men who will tell you, you know, if you're getting off track and if you're being a jerk and if we think you need to do something different or do you surround yourself with a posse or whatever you want to call it that only tell you everything you do is great, even though you're, you know, out partying at night sometimes to blow off steam and you're in the, you know, you're at the dance halls and different, you know, like you're doing the wrong things, but nobody will tell you you're doing them. Right. You know, like there was nobody in Tiger's circle back then to say, Tiger, this isn't a way to live by, you know, uh, going in, you know, going to some of the places he was going to and spending time with the women he was spending with and whatever else he was doing, you know, there was nobody in his circle. He didn't have one to say, hey, what's happening here? You're off. You're getting off base here, right? Because Tiger was all in for golf, but he still had to have an outlet. And his outlets, they tend to become very unhealthy outlets if you don't have an inner circle to be with and to trust and that you will also tell you when you're getting off base. So uh, some of that has to do with what his inner circle is like and, you know, other support networks in his life. And, you know, and is it starting to cause him to go to the dark side? If it's not, then it really may be working for him right now. There's maybe not a cost for him other than he's elevating performance and maybe he's sacrificing some relationships. But a lot of people have to sacrifice, you know, parts of their life if they want to be the best they can be. And and that's a choice sometimes. You know, I mean, it becomes an issue if you have a wife and kids and now you've chosen to sacrifice your relationship with them to be the best versus being single and saying, I intentionally, you know, not in a relationship where I don't have kids to take care of because I only want to focus on this dream. You know, it gets to be a problem when you have other pieces in your life that you should be responsible for, but you've chosen to ignore, to chase something. And that's when you get off base and uh, it starts to be a bigger cost and a benefit to pursuing greatness, at least in my observation. Well, makes sense to me, Doc. Uh, new book being out um uh, with Max Out Mindset, what's the what's the best spot for people who are interested in the book to maybe look for it? I know it's on Amazon. Is there other uh, places where they can uh, look for yeah. the book and, and, and grab it and get a read and learn from your wisdom here a little bit? Yeah, well, there's two ways. You can get it at performancemountain.com. That's our website for the company that Jack Riggins and Danny Woodhead and I have, uh, Matt Floss and Lauren Cook, a couple others who help us out as well. But uh, and then Scott Papik. So you can get it at performancemountain.com. That's all one word. You can also get it on Amazon. Um, I'm really proud right now that on Amazon, it, it came out December 1st, and I'm, I'm, the, I'm the number three, I'm the number one new release in the volleyball category and number three overall in volleyball. And then I'm something like number five in new releases under sports training. So um, I'm proud. A lot of people have decided that it's a been a valuable book for them so of course that's rewarding for me to hear because i really did write it out of love i mean it was a i'm not a writer by nature i'm not an author i'm a physician and so it took a year and a half and a lot of time and out of my comfort zone to write a book about my life experiences with some of the best teams and coaches and athletes that i've either worked with or observed because i write about people like steve kerr and pete carroll and coach tom osborne and people that i didn't directly work with but i spent a lot of time observing and then i write about a lot of the great coaches. And I, have a, I do have a good high school golf story in there about a kid named Patrick Clare that lives here in Lincoln. That's a really cool story about he, how he won the state championship and some of the mental things that he did to do that with his family. It was pretty cool. So, um, yeah, you can get it on Amazon. Um, yeah, they're trying to get to the number one category in volleyball, and I love to get to number one in sports training, but that's probably not realistic. So I appreciate your support and sharing the book with your listeners. I, I do think that if people – want to have a guide and they don't have access to a sports psych person or don't have time or money or the inclination to work with anybody that, you know, uh, you can, you can find everything you need to in this book to max out your mind and max out your emotions and max out your team. And it's pretty simple reading, I think, and pretty quick reading. My mom read it in a little over a day. So it's not that hard to read, but there's hopefully a lot of useful information about the strategies that you can implement to help match your mind out in whatever you're trying to get better at. Well, Doc, it's been a pleasure. Um, 
keep up the good work with all you guys. Uh, you guys are all my friends at, at Performance Mountain and what you guys are doing and the success you guys are having. It's fantastic and, and the clients that you're working with. So keep up the great work. Say hello to everybody uh, at my second home out there out in Nebraska. And, uh, yeah, keep uh, keep doing what you're doing. The the, 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 the work is is truly valid. It's got to be so cool from your side to, you know, that you can change people's lives with uh, the words that you put in the book and the work that you guys do. And, and I know you do it as a labor of love. So really appreciate you being on and, and, and keep up uh, the stuff that you guys are doing out there. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I look forward to meeting you in person one day. I do as well. Thanks doc. I appreciate it. Yep. Yeah, thank you.